Welcome to One Life Online. The podcast that brings you the weekly sermons at One Life Church, Kampala. In this episode, we listen to a sermon from John chapter 7 verses 32 through 39 and chapter 8 verses 12 through 30, presented by Martin Muchoki. As you listen to this message, may the Lord speak to you through His Word, by His Spirit, and cause you to walk according to His will, by His grace. Should we not have continued with chapter 8? We should have, and that's what I intended to do. But I thought just to go back a little bit and uh, Look in detail at Jesus as the living water. This is really profound and important, and I felt I didn't dig into it substantially last Sunday. And also think about Jesus as the light of the world, what that means and the implications in our very own lives. So that's why we, Nathan read from verse 32. When we looked at chapter 7, we know that Jesus is talking this at the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. We've had details about that in the past. Um, in chapter 11, Jesus is um, considered persona non grata. Have you ever heard that expression, persona non grata? You are, what can we say, um, unacceptable. You are unwelcome somewhere. I was once in a church where there was this lady, I don't know what happened exactly, but I have some of the details to fit in the pieces of this puzzle. But at the end of it all, the leaders of this church wrote a letter to this person. And some of the words in that letter were, you are considered persona non grata. You are not welcome in the compound or the premises of this church. And I thought that was very harsh, you know, because... Even when we looked at Matthew chapter 18, that reconciliation, restoration passage, I'm not convinced that people should be excommunicated because, I mean, you're sending the person away from the very same place where they should get help. But nonetheless, legal terms were used to a church member. Imagine that. You expect to hear this in a court of law, and then you're given a letter and you're told your persona non grata, you are unaccepted, you are unwelcome in this place. That's what they did to Jesus in verse 11 of chapter 7. And as if that was not enough, they prepared an arrest warrant and issued it against Jesus. And they said, arrest that man on the spot and bring him to us. So they sent their temple guards. The temple guards were like temple police officers. They were Levites who were in charge of keeping order at the temple. They said, go and execute this arrest warrant. You're wondering, this man who is being treated like this, what has he done? Is he a criminal? Is he a murderer? Has he committed treason? And when Nathan read verse 32, he, told, he read to us about the Pharisees and chief priests. Most of the chief priests would be Sadducees. You may or may not know this, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees never agreed on a lot of things. In doctrine, in practice, in life, they did not agree. But in the matter of hostility against Jesus, they come together and they agree. So again, you're wondering, yeah, then this person has to have committed something very horrible. 
is an English expression that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. What these guys are saying is, the enemy of my enemy is my enemy. And so Jesus addresses them. And he tells them, especially the temple guards, when they come to arrest me in verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me, for where I am, there you cannot come. He's talking of his departure to heaven, which they cannot understand because they are thinking of everything from physical eyes, not spiritual eyes. But where I am going, Jesus tells them, you cannot come. The person Jesus is addressing are non-Christians. They are unbelievers. Why would I make such a point? Because later in John chapter 14, the famous passage where Jesus said he's the way to the Father, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. He's talking to his disciples, to Christians, to believers. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And what does verse 3 say? It says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. To the believers, to Christians, Jesus is telling them, you know the way, you know where I'm going and you're going to come where I will be. And to these who reject him and want to kill him and accuse him of treason and so on and so forth, he tells them where I'm going, you cannot come. It's not a suggestion. It's not a multiple choice. It is a certainty. If you're an unbeliever, you cannot be with Jesus in heaven. Now, what kind of a man, what kind of person would make these kinds of claims? These are very strong claims. These are matters of life and death that he's dangling in front of his listeners. These are weighty, weighty issues. So in verse 37, in the last day, in the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried and said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. Let that person drink. Let that person drink. Another extraordinary claim of Jesus. And Jesus here uses water metaphorically. Metaphorically. As an invitation to salvation. He's inviting them to believe. He has made it clear. The only way is me. And the only way there is to believe. So in a picture form, he says, come, thirst, drink. And, and you may wonder, where is Jesus getting this? A few weeks ago, someone preached from Isaiah 55. And you find that language in Isaiah 55. Where Isaiah says, everyone that starts, come to the water, hearken diligently, eat that which is good, let your soul delight itself in fatness, incline your ear, come near to me, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. So his hearers, they should be able to pick this up, right? They have been reading the scriptures, especially the religious leaders and the Jewish rulers. They know the word of God. When Jesus says this, they should pick it up like this. Oh, that was written by the prophet Isaiah. We have his scroll. And Jesus tells them, my gift, the gift of God is me, and it is invaluable. You cannot buy it. You can only respond to it. You know how we respond to the gift which God gives? By accepting it 
or by rejecting it. By accepting Jesus or by rejecting Jesus, there is a choice. There's always a choice. And Jesus is also referring to Isaiah chapter 12, where God tells us, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. They should be able to pick this up. You know, today the expressions when they are spoken of in any quarter, you as a Christian can be able to pick them out easily, isn't it? Someone says something, and oh, that should be in the Bible. Someone says something, oh, I know that, I've read it somewhere in the Bible, even if you may not be able to know where immediately. And Jesus quotes Isaiah, chapter 12, where God himself satisfies his divine wrath against sin and offered himself as a refuge, as a strength, as his people's song and salvation. But the question up to here is, so what? So what if God offers himself, so what? So with joy you shall draw water. Do we deserve it? No. The previous chapters of Isaiah had said we don't deserve it. The people don't deserve it. It is God's undeserved grace. Yet Jesus offers himself as the living water, salvation to all of his hearers. It doesn't matter where you have been or what you have done or what atrocities you have committed. You can drink of the living water, be refreshed, and receive salvation. But not only the Old Testament gospel, you know, Isaiah is the Old Testament gospel book, but Jesus himself has talked about this idea of living water. Do you remember in John chapter 4, when he met the Samaritan woman? Jesus told the Samaritan woman who he was offering living water to, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, give me to drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. The woman listened to Jesus, but she didn't get it. Just like the way before salvation, we listen to Jesus, just like the way in our walk with Christ, we listen to the word of God, we don't get it. She doesn't get it. She says to him, excuse me, sir, you have nothing to draw with, the well is deep. From where then can you get that living water? I mean, I have something to draw out the water, you don't. I know this well better than you, you are a stranger in this place. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Basically, the woman is saying, listen, Jesus, I, my life is just fine. Mimi, Niko, Sawa, I am just okay. I am doing well. Sorry, my Kiswahili has come out there, but my life is just fine. I have everything that I need. I have knowledge. I have resources. I have connections. I have experience. Why would I need you, Jesus? The woman asks. I have everything I require, and some of you may be asking that, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need this living water? And then Jesus tells her, you are actually missing the one thing that you ought to have. The water that I shall give you shall be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The Bible college which I went to had, had taken this two verses 23 and 24 and inscribed them at the entrance of the Bible college. Then they provided a tap which had water flowing 24 hours a day. 
Anybody from that community could come with their bucket or whatever it is that you want to fetch water with. And this was clean water that you could drink, cool water. And they wrote this verse. What a wonderful way to evangelize. That is, you're coming to fetch that water with your bottle. You read these verses, whoever drinks of this water, that person is going to thirst again. You're going to come back to this tap again and again and again and again. So what shall I do to quench my thirst permanently? You have to drink of the water which Jesus gives. So not only the Old Testament and Jesus' words to talk about himself as the living water, but when you read the scriptures all the way to the end in the book of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 17, Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him that hears say, come, and let him that is a thirst come. Can you see this idea of thirst? It keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. Should easily pick it up. And whoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Freely. Like that water was offered for free outside that building. So when Jesus talks about himself as the living water, he's referring to these very familiar passages which they should have picked up. But there was even something more interesting. During that feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles, there was a ceremonial procession. And water would be carried from one location all the way to the temple. And people would follow maybe, maybe the high priest in this procession as water is being carried. Some even say the water was gotten from the pool of Siloam. And then they would take it to the temple courts likely the temple of women, and then they would pour out that water. You know what they wanted to symbolize by all that entire procession? They were symbolizing thanksgiving to God who has provided water for us at the end of this agricultural year. We've had water, and so we have crops. Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated at around that time, at the end of the at the end of the farming year, when there was a harvest of grapes and olives, and now they are saying, thank you, God, and they are carrying this water on their back, and everyone is following this kind of a procession. Some people even say it was thanksgiving for God who provided water for the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. They are remembering that God provided for them. So Jesus uses that very idea, common figures in his day, and says, I am the living water, a picture that is relatable to his audience. Many of you, if not all of you, have attended a wedding somewhere. If you, if you haven't, you can just walk into any church on Sunday, they, Saturday, there's always a wedding, and nobody will block you at the gate. If they block you, just go to another church, in case, you know, they have invitations. No one will stop you. If you want free food on Saturday, just walk to any resort or any reception, dressed well, go and sit down. Nobody asks at the wedding receptions, hey, how do you know the bride or the groom? Don't know each other. So if I was a single person, that's what I would do. I would be having free meals every Saturday. I'm giving you ideas, I know. But go with wedding garments, you know. Anyway, so if you go to a wedding, the bride walks from somewhere at the back, and when the bride gets into the hall, like this hall, for example, everybody stands up. Why do people stand up? 
Why not just sit down? You stand in honor of the bride. In honor of the bride. And a beautiful picture of marriage is portrayed there, God's marriage to his people. So Jesus takes this occasion, uses something relatable to his audience, like the idea of a bride coming in, and takes this occasion as an opportunity to make a call to all the Jews to believe in him as the long-awaited Messiah. And then he says in verse 38, the person who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being. That was the version that was read. My version says, out of his belly. Maybe your version may say, out of your deepest parts shall flow rivers of living water. Where does Jesus quote these words? There's no one scripture really, but there are several scriptures in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, God purposes to restore his relationship with his people by pouring out his spirit. By giving his spirit. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your seed. Jesus maybe is thinking of Isaiah chapter 58. We know that chapter because it talks about true fasting. What is true fasting? Read Isaiah 58. In the midst of that, in verse 11, we are told that those who choose to reflect Jesus in their lives will be like a well-watered garden. Some of you are gardeners. You have a home garden or you do some farming somewhere. You know how green and, and lively and lovely a, a well-watered garden looks like? You want to stay there. Maybe for some of you, garden may mean grass in someone's compound. You know how a well-watered grass in the compound looks like? Jesus says, those who choose to reflect Jesus in their lives will be like that. Maybe Jesus is thinking of Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 25 to verse 27. Where God told his people that I am going to sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and all your idols. I am going to cleanse you. Maybe when you read this you wonder, uh, wait, I, I, there are no idols in my house. I don't worship any images made by human hands. But an idol is anything that takes us away from knowing and worshiping the true God in truth and in spirit. Anything that you go to seek for that will give you meaning or value or importance or significance, while you should find your value and meaning and importance and significance in Jesus. He should satisfy you. But anything that we go for, for recognition and identity and so on, we make it an idol. Jesus says, God will approve that and he will give a new heart. A new heart. God will perform a heart transplant, removing the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. It's interesting. Notice God is the only participant. We are playing no part in this. We don't assist. We don't collaborate. We don't cooperate in any way with this cleansing from sin and reformation of heart and empowerment by his spirit in order to live the way God requires. God is the participant. I will do it. Hence verse 39 of John chapter 7, the connection to the giving of the spirit where Jesus says, where, sorry, where John says, 
But this he spoke of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Was not yet glorified. What does this mean? That the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Listen, we know that the disciples were saved and baptized by the Holy Spirit, the disciples of Jesus. I mean, there is no other way for salvation and there is no other explanation to explain what they accomplished, the miracles that they did, bringing people back to life, literally dead people back to life, exorcising demons, healing diseases that could not be cured by any doctor at that time or treatment. How were they able to do that? John 14, 17 tells us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know that. We know that Jesus is the only one who baptized with the Spirit. We also know that. Nobody else baptizes with the Spirit, only Jesus. Some of you are familiar with John chapter 3 and verse 16. So I decided to quote Luke chapter 3 and verse 16, where John answered and said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So we know those two things. We also know that during Jesus' public ministry, the Holy Spirit was not given. What does this mean? It means his full measure, his permanent indwelling in believers awaited another day. It awaited Pentecost. Pentecost. It was at Pentecost that God gave the Spirit to fully abide in all believers after Jesus was glorified. That is, after his death and resurrection and ascension, when he was glorified and on his, in his exaltation. Now he dwells in each one of us who have believed in him in a way that he never dwelt before Pentecost. If you read passages such as Romans chapter 8, in verse 9, for example, it talks about this spirit as the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ. The one who reveals Christ, who directs us to Christ, who shows us who Christ is. So, living water is what we are talking about. Jesus' point in these verses is not only to give that invitation to receive him, as the Messiah, as the Lord, but also to clearly demonstrate that the feast that they are celebrating, the Feast of Tabernacles, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He fulfills it as the Messiah, including the water ritual. He is the living water. And he who believes in Christ from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, the abundant, outflowing power of the Holy Spirit in your life. In your life, in your life, in your life. So people will look at you and see that you are different. They look at you and, and they hear the way you're talking, you're not talking like anybody else. You don't do your work in the office like everybody, anybody else. You are always on time. When you come for work, you always live when you're supposed to live. Maybe even stay longer. In your business dealings, you are honest and open in your dressing, in your demeanor. And, and people ask, whatever we are seeing on the outward, how can you be so different from everybody else? What is your answer? It's the Holy Spirit. 
He's living and he's flowing in my life. It is he who has made a difference. So Jesus presents himself as the living water. And he's talking of the indwelling of the Spirit. Who those of you who have believed in him, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Listen, does the Holy Spirit dwell in you? No, no, don't just take it as another pastor's question to apply a message. I mean, think about it. Does the Holy Spirit really dwell in you? Have you drunk of this living water? Does he? John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus speaks again. And that word again is important. Because those people who say the whole account of the adulterous woman, which we looked at last Sunday, was not found in the earliest manuscripts, and so on and so forth, and maybe it's not there even in your Bible version you're carrying today. They say, John chapter 7 ends in verse 52, then immediately we should begin in verse 12, hence the words again in John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus speaks again and says, I am the light of the world. Mm, I am the light of the world. This is the second of the seven I am statements of Jesus. Remember those, we looked at them briefly a few weeks ago. Beginning in John chapter 6 and verse 34, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That's the first one. Here's the second one in chapter, seven, chapter 8 and verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10 and verse 7, Jesus will say, I am the door of the sheep. In verse 11, verse 14 of that same chapter, Jesus will say, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11 and verse 25 of John, Jesus will say, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14 and verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I and I alone, that's the idea. There is no other way, there is no other way. If you are looking for another way, it's not there. It's Jesus, it's the way, the truth and the life. In chapter 15 and verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Why is this important? Because Jesus reveals himself as God, pointing to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. What happened in Exodus chapter 3? God appeared to Moses. There was a burning bush. It's not being consumed. Moses is wondering, what is this? He draws near. He's told, take off your sandals. This place is holy ground. He's told, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And go and tell my people, get ready to go. And Moses asks, he, gives, he first gives a, a raft of reasons why I'm not the right person to go. And he was right in all of his reasons. He was not qualified. But then God, he qualifies the unqualified. Then he asks God, when I go there and tell them, the Lord your God told me to tell you to let his people go. They will ask, who sent you? Hence the verse, God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, thus shall you say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. And the way Jesus spoke this I am, a lot of times, just like that word, the son of man, it confused the scribes and the Pharisees and the law experts. In a sense, it appeared as if he's saying he's God. In a sense, it wasn't. 
And that's why they couldn't arrest him immediately because they, they were trying to figure out what is he saying. But at certain points, like we will see at the end of chapter 8, Jesus says it explicitly, I am. And in these seven ways, he says, I am. And so at this time of the Feast of Booths, Jesus reveals himself as the light of the world. As the light of the world. You wonder, why did he use light? There was many other symbolism he would have used. They were eating bread or drinking wine. He would have said, I'm the wine of the world. Or he would have said, I'm the something else of the world. But he did not. He said, I'm the light of the world. Because as part of that celebration, lights were lit. Some people talk about this light as candles. And, and those candles were key components of this feast. Some other people say there were four bright lights that were lit and were put in that, in that court of the women in the temple. And they provided bright light at night. And people would come under that light and dance and celebrate and sing and praise the Lord. And Jesus is taking exactly what they are using at that time and he's saying, listen, I am the light of the world. And then he takes their mind back to the wilderness. How did God lead the Israelites in the wilderness? By a pillar of fire. By light. Jesus says, there's so much light around this festival. Let me tell you, these lights speak of me. I am the light of the world. It was an amazing feast. How many of you enjoy orchestras? Going to sit and listen to a band playing lovely music, an orchestra. There was even a Levitical orchestra that would play at this feast and people would rejoice. So Jesus uses this celebration, the center of which was bright light and many lights to declare that he is the light of the world. Not the light of that feast. Not the light of the Jews. Not the light of the Gentiles only. The light of the world. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 to verse 22. We are told that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them by the way and by night in a pillar of fire. Jesus says that light was a picture of and it spoke of and it looked forward to me. That light was to direct people towards me. You know, sometimes when you look back at your life, you may see particular people in your life who played a very crucial role. And you didn't know it at the time. But they were like a guide to you. They were like a light to you. And they showed you the way. Maybe you grew up with no parents, or with just a single parent, or even with both parents. Maybe you were lost in the usual chaos of primary or secondary school and somehow someone held your hand and guided you and told you, you should go this way. This is what you should do. Don't speak like this. Maybe they even protected you and they kept you. Jesus says, that light in the wilderness that spoke, spoke of my guidance and my protection for you as my people. Maybe you may remember other verses that speak of light, such as 
Maybe your favorite is Psalm 27 verse 1. The Lord is my light. Should have picked it up. Maybe Psalm 109, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and your word is a light to my path. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel experiences the presence of God and the majestic splendor of his glory through a vision. I've been reading the book of Ezekiel of late. And there are strange living creatures which Ezekiel later realizes, eh, these are cherubim. The ones who are, the ones, who, the ones which protect, the ones which take care of God's things. The ones who carry God's things. And the idea there is the idea of fire as well appears. And the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning. Jesus is a light to the Jews. Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. The gospel writer in the Old Testament, Isaiah tells us, in Isaiah chapter 42, in Isaiah chapter 49, he tells us that he is a light of the Gentiles. Isaiah 42 verse 6. Jesus not the covenant to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49 and verse 6 tells us, I will give you for a light to the Gentiles. So they can't boast and say, this Messiah is only for us, nor he's also for others. And we can't boast and say, oh, this Messiah is only for us now because the Jews rejected him. No, thirdly, we are told that he is the light of the world. Yes, at the end of Isaiah 49 verse 6, we are told that you may be my salvation unto where? Unto where? Unto the ends of the earth. What did Jesus tell the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Maybe Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 and verse 47 when they were rejected by the multitude and the Jews had instigated the multitude they said that the Lord has commanded us I have sent you to be a light of the Gentiles that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, I am bringing it to you. Here is the privilege you have been given. We saw it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. Remember? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. You are the light of the world. You who is seated here, you are the light of the world. Can people see Jesus today with their physical eyes? He's not here. He's been glorified. He's been exalted. He's at the right hand of the throne of God, the Father. He dwells in us by his spirit. You are his representative here on earth. You are the light of the world. And that's what we should be. Not adding to the darkness. Not contributing to the madness not multiplying the confusion, but being light to a dark world. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 to verse 25 says that the city, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord did lighten it. And the lamb is the light thereof. 
and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut all by day, for there shall be no night there. A few people have tried to explain to me countries which they have gone to or lived in where the sun takes longer to set. It is maybe what, 8 p.m. or 10 p.m. in Ugandan time or 11 p.m. and still as I can't imagine what that feels like. And so I have asked, well, <laughs> my children have to go to bed at 8. We have to eat supper at 7. Uh, we, it is the darkness which reminds us to go and sleep. How do you know how to sleep? And they say, oh, we just... We, we, we have these curtains that just darken the entire room and we have to fight with the children to go and sleep and not open the curtains and so on and so forth. Can you imagine that? 24 hours of light. That's how it will be in heaven. In heaven. I've been taking my children through the Pilgrim's Progress. The greatest book that has ever been written next to the Bible is the Pilgrim's Progress. Yes, there's my biased opinion, but nonetheless, it is what it is. And this man, Christian, is on his journey to the celestial city where there is no night. There is no night. And the glory of God lights up the entire place. Why wouldn't you want to be at a place like that? So, as I conclude, do you feel settled with this issue of living water and light of the world? And Jesus as the living water and the light of the world. Maybe one more reference then, since you have not said yes. It is Zechariah who beautifully brings these two together. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6 to verse 8, he builds a connection between the creation account in Genesis and Jesus. In Jesus will be new creation with him as the light. And just as fresh water flowed at the Garden of Eden at the beginning, Jesus brings a fresh flow of living water flowing from him through Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. He is the living water, but he is also the light of the world. It shall come to pass, Zechariah tells us, in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord not day, not night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. If you are looking for any other source of life or light, if you are looking for any other source of freshness, and power, and strength, and guidance, and protection, and extravagance, and beauty, and majesty, and glory, and all of these amazing, beautiful things. Today, your search should come to an end. Jesus provides all of this. He is the living water. And he, and he alone, is the light of the world. 
Thank you for listening to God's Word today. Feel free to contact the pastor on phone at 0705-581-369 or send an email to pastor at onelifechurch.ug or follow us on Facebook at One Life Church or subscribe to our YouTube channel at One Life Church Kampala, Uganda. One Life Church is a multicultural community of believers equipped to serve Christ's mission.